One of the hottest things on our website this weekend was a column I wrote about why we didn't do a story about Brown Stadium, and the reaction is what we're going to talk about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, and let's get to it. I did write a column over the weekend explaining why we were about the only media in town not to pursue a story about the Browns possibly leaving downtown Cleveland because there was no concrete to it. It was all conjecture and unnamed sources. The reaction I got to that was fascinating. People came back and said, you know, and this is before I got here, Art Modell did the same thing. When he was trying to jack the city for more money, he actually bought 200 acres in Strongsville and scared everybody into thinking he'd go. He eventually did go. He went to Baltimore and that we know how that ended badly. But what, what this whole thing has me thinking, and Layla, I'd be fascinated to hear your take on this. I, I don't believe for a minute the Haslam's are looking to build in the suburbs because they've been trying to get a ton of money from the city. We keep hearing a half billion dollars. And if they go and build it themselves, then they own it. They got to pay taxes on it. They got to pay for the whole thing. And there's not going to be nearly the subsidies for a privately owned stadium there is for public. And they have been hot in negotiations to get more money from the city. So this whole thing stinks. But what if the city suddenly had hundreds of millions of dollars it did not have to spend on the stadium? We don't know what all the funding sources are, but the city is close. They have figured out what they need to renovate that stadium, at least the public portion. I'm guessing it's somewhere around $300 million. You know, the word is that the Haslam's want a half billion, which is not going to happen. But there are enough taxes out there and things they can do to do $300 million. So, Layla, what would happen if you didn't have to spend that on a stadium and you could answer city councils begging for money to right. fix up playgrounds and rec centers. How far might that go? Well, it's a great question. And we are pretty, we're on the eve of seeing exactly what is on the wish list for the city because they're going to be releasing their parks and recreation master plan sometime soon, which is supposed to go hand in hand with that whole TIF proposal. And you're right, there has been endless debate and in fighting over what is going to, you know, where that TIF money will be spent. And this freeing up money on a stadium would be, um, would be a gift to the city, in my opinion. Another county official who, who didn't say it on the record, so I can't name him, but back in the last fight about stadium financing, I can't remember if it was Progressive Field or the arena, but during one of those fights, he pointed out the, the many, many, many people who use the towpath trail every weekend, every day, and, and looked at the cost and said, you know, look at, look at the use of a stadium like, like this football stadium compared to that. Wouldn't we be better off as a community if we took the money we invest in these stadiums and put it into things like recreational trails? I, th this, is, this could be the gift. Like we're, we're talking about this downtown development district, which, which, you know, hilariously, the Haslam started that conversation and now pretend that they want to abandon it. And, and the council is saying, hey, if we get money for that, we need it in the neighborhoods. Well, here's the potential of $300 million. What would mm -hmm. it cost? to upgrade a rec center? What would it cost to convert a city pool into a Mayfield Village style splash zone? I'm betting you probably can't do everything, but man, $300 million could give the kids of Cleveland a much, much more similar experience to what the kids in the suburbs have. And why shouldn't they have that? Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we've, we've long 
decided, you know, or debated whether or not the the estimates on the economic impact of having Brown Stadium were overblown. I completely think so. It's 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 not like a you know when you have Quicken Loans Arena, you've got so many events that can be housed there throughout the year. We're talking what eight eight uses a year. Is that what we get out of Brown Stadium right. football games? Well, and that's it. Maybe 10, maybe 12. They're going to have a concert there. Look, let's face it. The Haslams have much greater wealth than Cleveland does by far. By, by a factor of probably three or four. They have billions of dollars in wealth. Call their bluff. They're saying, we, you know, we're, we're looking around. We're, we may go elsewhere. Think about what you could do with that money. If I were on city council right now, I would be completely changing my tax saying, hey, they said it. Let's take them up on it. Let's take care of the children of Cleveland with pools and rec centers. And, and you know, last week we had a big debate about this using city money to make a private pickleball court. This could build all sorts of public pickleball courts, even indoor ones. I mean, it's a lot of cash that the city clearly thinks it has available. Right. Except if we're talking about any syntax money, that is earmarked specifically for the purposes that it I mean, you can't just reappropriate that. But you can you can move it around. I mean, it, that can replace something else. Look, you, you, we've seen them do it over and over again. Where there's a will, there's a way. If there's suddenly a block of cash that is earmarked for a specific thing, there's a way of using it True. to replace others. It's a, it's a great conversation. And I think we're going to look at just how far would that kind of money go to making rec centers and things better for kids. Uh, it'll be an interesting story. I'm sure it'll be well-read because the column certainly was. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The eclipse is coming to Ohio in April, and we have been beset with warnings of cataclysm, apocalyptic traffic, and chaos. It's like we're back in the Middle Ages with doomsayers. It's bizarre. Reporter Pete Krause took a sober look at what we really should expect, and one of some are acting like it's Y2K. Laura, what did he find? that this is probably a little bit overblown, at least to the people who have actually experienced this before in 2017. Now, Cleveland didn't get the full eclipse. I don't know if you guys remember, but we had a partial eclipse here, but places like Carbondale, Illinois had the full thing and they overprepared, they said. What they ended up with is traffic. And in a small town where you've got one interstate heading out of town, that could be a big problem. In Cleveland, where we have multiple interstates and people are gonna be spread out it, it probably won't reflect the same kind of hours-long traffic problem, but we still could see that. What we're not probably going to see is Lorraine County saying their population could swell to easily five times the current population, which is just craziness where they're getting these numbers. And even this came out in a newsletter was sent out to a bunch of people, including, I believe, a podcaster's parents. <laughs> where we saw this. And and they're urging people to fill up their tanks of gas beforehand, make sure they've got water and food on hand for three days and not to make any medical appointments on that day. And that does seem like we're overreacting because yeah, maybe you don't want to schedule something at 3 p.m. on April 8th because that is going to be the prime totality. But I don't think you're going to have to worry about filling your bathtub up with water. I do get why schools have decided to close because they let out at the very mm -hmm. time of the totality. So getting them home 
could become hairy. We, we the, the story did lay out in certain areas, not really metropolitan areas. Nashville didn't have a problem at all, mm-hmm. but they did lay out. There were places where there was pretty tight traffic. I heard from one person that was trying to get back here after driving down there, and it took them pretty much a day and a half uh, because traffic was thick. So we get that, that, that after it's over, anybody that Zoomed here to see it is getting out of here. But the fact mm-hmm. is, most people probably aren't coming here if they're traveling. They're going to go to Texas because we have a 60% chance of clouds and Texas is not supposed to be cloudy if you go with the odds. So it's not even clear they're coming here. Right, exactly. And I do think it's kind of funny that we're courting visitors with one hand and the other hand saying, it's going to be terrible, please. It's going to be awful. and It's going to be an emergency. It's like, which one do you want here? There's a site called thegreatamericaneclipse.com that's predicting anywhere from 139,000 to 556,000 visitors to Ohio as a whole. Now, not Columbus is not going to be in the path of totality, but you know, Lorraine is, Cleveland is, I So there's a whole swath of the state. And that's the thing. You can spread out. There are a bunch of events going on. The uh, Cedar Point is opening for the eclipse. There's going to be one of those minor league ballparks, the Spire Institute out in Geneva, anywhere that has a lot of open space and has the ability to put on a festival for a day, they're going to do it. It makes sense when so many kids are going to be off school anyway, that it's kind of nice that there's someplace you could go to congregate. but You could also walk over to a big empty field and look up, assuming that we're going to be able to see it. There is the element that people will check the weather forecast in the day or day and a half before. Mm -hmm. And wherever it's going to be clear, they hop in their cars and they drive down. And so there is an element of increased traffic. It's just been strange how it's been Y2K-like. I mean, it really did feel like we're in the Middle Ages. I was thinking last week of the Mark Train story, a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, and several readers wrote in to say the same thing to a subtext message I sent. <laughs> Does he ever read that story? People are losing their heads. And- See, I just had Taylor Swift's You Need to Calm Down in my head when I was <laughs> thinking of this. Yeah, it's a cool moment. You know, go outside, find a place where you can see unexpected, look up. It's a it's a rarity, a once-in-a-lifetime. So good story by Pete Krause, putting it into perspective. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Poor Sam Randazzo. He says he's too old and cash-strapped to go to trial as scheduled for taking $4 million in bribes for First Energy, which First Energy has admitted giving him. And he's pretending that he did all this while he was pretending to represent us as the top guy on the Ohio Utilities Commission. Lisa, why should we feel sorry for him and what's he asking for? Well, he's old and poor, like you said. So the former PUCO chair, Sam Randazzo, who's facing 11 counts in a bribery indictment and up to 20 years in prison if convicted, he has asked federal judge Timothy Black to transfer the case from Cincinnati to Columbus. Um, He said he gave several reasons. He says, well, he's going to be 75 when the trial begins. It's a 110-mile drive from Cincinnati to Columbus, I mean, from Columbus to Cincinnati, and it would be a four-week trial, so he'd be driving a lot. And he said, you know, it would be a lot of fuel money or paying for hotel rooms for him and his attorney, and it's a burden on his family who would want to participate in the trial. Um, He also said that the travel costs are exacerbated by the Ohio Supreme Court approving the attorney general's freeze on his assets. And he said most likely witnesses don't live near Cincinnati, so they're going to have to drive too. So those are the reasons. 
Is he trying to get away from this judge? This judge was pretty damning in the trial of Larry Householder when at the sentencing ripped him pretty hard. Is this really a, a strategy to get away from a judge that's in the southern part of the state it, to get to the central? It's possible, but we can't really know that because the filing suggested that Judge Black could actually hear the case in Columbus instead of Cincinnati. And as you know, Black was pretty harsh on Joe Householder when he, uh, you know, when he got convicted in Black's court. And uh, Householder's attorneys were on the offensive. They attacked Black and said he had a grudge against their client. So we really don't know why he's moving but I, I would love to see if there were a hearing where judge black looks randazzo in the eyes and says let me get this straight you don't want to drive back and forth but you're okay with me driving back and forth i'm not the guy who's on trial for bribery for four million dollars i we don't usually see favor being shown like this to a defendant usually if you're charged with a crime and your trial set you better show up and be there and figure it out it'll be interesting to see whether one they agree to this, and two, whether Black gives up the case to another judge as a result. Well, and he's, you know, he's pulling the poor man card, too. He says, I can't afford hotels and driving for a month. Yeah, although, as I recall, the reason Dave Yost went to freeze his assets is because he had moved some stuff. Mm -hmm. he, he had already started to move some stuff around, so I'm not quite so sure he's as barren of cash as he claims it's hilarious for him looking for sympathy this guy is one of the biggest villains in ohio history and and it's not like you know you say innocent till proven guilty the briber has admitted it i mean the briber has said yeah we gave him money to do our bidding and so I, I you know for him claiming innocence good luck with that he probably should have taken a plea you're listening to today in ohio are we about to lose another cleveland state university president in what feels like record time what was the distressing news over the weekend about the president's position, Laura? Laura Boom Bloomberg has been president for less than two years, and so it does feel like she just got here, but she's a finalist to be the next top leader for the University of Minnesota. And this came out in a news release on Friday when University of Minnesota sensed one out naming three finalists, and she's one of them. She's facing a University of Michigan vice president named Rebecca Cunningham, the University of New Mexico provost and executive VP, James Holloway. So they are going to interview them and I think decide by the end of this month. Now, Bloomberg's from Minnesota. She was born and raised there. She served as the dean for the university's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. She earned her PhD in educational policy and administration there. So to her, this feels, I mean, it is home. So while she says it's a true honor to serve as CSU's eighth president, there's only one position at one other institution that could possibly speak to my heart as much as CSU does, and that's my alma mater, the University of Minnesota. But you're right, this is a kind of, well, at least the second short-termer that we've had here. Harlan Sands took over in 2018. He was recruited by Bernie Marino, who was the chair of CSU's board of trustees at the time. That didn't last long. He left in 2022 because of, quote, differences regarding how the university should be led in the future. And those are in contrast to two prior presidents. Ronald Berkman was president from 2009 to 2018 and Michael Schwartz from 2002 to 2009. So, and I think when you think of CSU transforming itself from a commuter school to a real campus, you're probably thinking about Berkman. 
I, I'm just surprised that she would do this. this. When you take a university president's position, it's a commitment. It, it takes a long time to find a president. Case Western's Eric Kaler is also from Minnesota, worked with her in the past, vouched for her to get her here. And it's an investment. It, 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 it takes a spend. And you're trying to build a vision. For somebody to accept that position, and then beat feet two years later, less than two years later, it's a betrayal of the process. Once you take that job, you're committing to carrying out the vision, to carrying out the promise. I was stunned to hear about this. I, I, I don't blame you. They came out of nowhere. Um, and I get what she's saying, but you do make a commitment. And I wonder how the students are feeling. Well, if I were the University of Minnesota, I would be like, really, you're ready to leave that quickly? How do we know you wouldn't do that to us if some bright shiny came your way down the road? And you'd say, well, yeah, Minnesota was my dream, but UCLA is called. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. it just doesn't ring right to me that you would walk away. I mean, I, I've said it before. I so much appreciate the stairs. Eric Gordon did the work for years as the CEO of the school's. And it made a difference. People who are short timers really handicap a city. And CSU wasn't doing well. I mean, they're, they're, they've lost students and things have been rocky. So they need a steadying hand here. It almost feels like she took the job as a placeholder. Because if you think she's only been in the job less than two years, she probably applied for this new job several months ago. Yeah, I know. I, 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 it's a stunner and a remarkable betrayal of Cleveland. You shouldn't do this. You should pull your name out of this. And and do what you promised you would do. If, if you pull your name out now, though, don't you feel like people will be like, well, you don't really want to be here. That's fairly clear. Yeah, I you, mean, she she wasn't recruited just I don't know where she was before CSU, but she did start in the fall of 2021 as, as the CSU provost and senior president for academic affairs. So she wasn't brought in just to be president, although if Ronald Burke or sorry, if um. The last president left because of a difference in opinion. You, you had to be feeling like they knew he was out the door maybe when she got hired. Yeah, I, I, I it's a surprise. I think it's taken everybody in town aback. And I imagine Eric Keller is feeling a little bit betrayed here because he had stood up for her. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Erica Steed took over Metro Health in the middle of a crisis involving bonuses that her predecessor had awarded himself. What does she say she's done to restore confidence in how the place is run following the revelations about Akram Boutros? Layla? Yeah, as you said, Chris, former Metro CEO Akram Boutros was accused of giving himself $1.9 million in bonuses without the approval of the board. Those bonuses followed his glowing self-evaluations, and the board fired him when they discovered all of this in late 2022. And so Erica Steed told reporter Julie Washington that she knew that she would have to put some reforms in place to protect against something like this ever happening again if she wanted to regain the trust of the public and the trust of her employees. So throughout the past year, Steed took steps to to make what she characterized as very loose oversight, more rigorous, and cut policies that didn't meet the standards in the industry. For one, she created the position of chief people officer. That position reports directly to her and supervises the hospital system's human resources department, including the management of executive level salaries. Steed says before this reform, there were a lot of human resource functions that were being performed by different hospital leaders. And that's not the way it works in that industry. Steed also eliminated the, the supplemental bonus program. 
that that Boutros was accused of of uh, taking advantage of. Metro's annual performance based variable compensation plan is now tied to system wide goals. So the whole management group, including the CEO, succeeds or fails together. Steed says this is how other health systems manage similar compensation programs. If the hospital system meets its goals, the hospital leaders can earn 100% of their salary total. So it's important to note that that there are no award bonuses and you can you you know there's a, a kind of a sliding scale of of how much people's salaries are tied to their um, well, what percentage is is in play here, I guess, of their salary, but that is the cap on how much they can earn. An outside firm, um, an audit firm, determines if the system goals are met. That's also very important. There are no self-evaluations going on. Steed also stepped back from participating in any salary decisions for herself and other hospital leaders. The Board of Trustees now has a dedicated human resources and compensation committee that performs reviews of all salary employees, of all employee salaries, including hers. The committee receives payroll data for all senior executives once a year. They focus, at least once a year, I guess I should say, they focus exclusively on salaries in greater detail than in the past, and they work with an outside compensation consultant for guidance on that. It sounds like common sense steps. I mean, th- this is the way it always should have worked and had fallen to pieces under Boutros. We're, of course, still waiting. It seems like we're waiting forever. The Ohio Ethics Commission and the state auditor have been investigating the whole Boutros case now since Thanksgiving of 2022. And you keep wondering, when are they going to come through with whatever they found? How hard is it to figure this out? Um, that the Ethics Commission has a history of being very, very slow. Ultimately, if there is any kind of finding of criminality, it would go to a prosecutor to decide whether to file charges. But it's interesting that we we're getting all of these fixes before we get the result of those audits. Because what if those audits find other things? You know, she. I guess Erica Steed would have to come back and, and do some other repairs. That's true. But it seems like most of this, and, and she did rely on guidance from some consultants, it seems, to craft these. But these kind of bring Metro in, in line with what the industry standards seem to be. And I think uh, I think these were really strong moves. You know, I, I know some folks who work for Metro Health, and they really loved Akram Boutros. I mean, he was seen as such a thought leader in the industry, and they would have done anything for him. And the way they described the sense of betrayal they felt when all this happened and and the low morale that fell upon the institution in the aftermath of everything that came came out, it's it's quite depressing to hear about it. And so I hope that these moves that by Erica Steed kind of go a long way toward regaining some of that morale. Yeah, I agree with you. They're, they're strong steps. I mean, she's putting real rigor in. There's an independent review. And it does raise questions about what the board was doing before this all came about. The board should have been on top of this stuff. Uh, but at least these steps are in now. It's not easy to do all that in a year either. I mean, it's a huge system. It has to serve its mission of, you know, providing medicine to people and taking care of them. So the fact that she got all this done in a year is a credit to her management. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio is a big semiconductor factory coming to suburban Columbus. So Ohio cares about chip making. What did the Biden administration announce late last week to help build this industry nationwide, Lisa? 
Yeah, the White House announced that it's going to invest $5 billion to establish a National Semiconductor Technology Center, or NSTC, location to be determined. But they want this center to kind of look at uh, innovating, you know, and, and expediting research and development, meeting the workforce needs of the semiconductor industry. And they want to gather everybody together to collaborate, government, industry, labor, education, customers, investors, and some suppliers, and they want to lower the participation barriers in research and development, which can be very expensive. They want to train the next generation of tech engineers and researchers, and they want to raise our profile in the global industry because currently the United States only produces 10% of the global chip supply. None of the most advanced are created here, so they want to change that. I haven't seen anything beyond the initial report, but it was Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal. Somebody reported that the factory construction was slowing down because the incentives from the federal government weren't being placed in. But I've seen nothing more on that. So I don't know if that was a Haslam style ploy to push something or if it was a legitimate kind of move because they're worried about it. Yeah, it was a report in the Wall Street Journal, and they said that the Ohio opening of the new Albany Intel plant was delayed till late 2026. It was supposed to open next year, but they cited slow chip market. They say there's a slow chip market, and they're waiting for government incentives to come to fruition. Yeah, we'll have to see. I wonder if this is part of the, the administration's response. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl last night back-to-back for the first time in 20 years. But is there any bigger winner these days than Tavis? We're talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, the biggest power couple of the moment in the world. Reporter Ashley Bastock took a look at how the power couple, with its roots in Cleveland Heights, came together. Laura, what did she find? There's never been a celebrity couple quite like this one. It's a new era. And I mean, I don't know if you looked at social media that, or if you're friends with the same people I am, that there were little girls wearing shirts that said, go Taylor's boyfriend, like in <laughs> Chiefs co- colors. And somebody quipped, you know, I heard Taylor's boyfriend is playing at the Usher concert. Uh, it just captures this idea that a Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, you know, union relationship is giving an entirely new audience to the NFL. And hey, maybe there's a whole lot of Kelsey fans that are now listening to Taylor Swift. I'm not sure. She had already been, you know, the Times person of the year who they referred to her as the main character of the world at the time, which seems like an overstatement. But you think about the amount of time and energy devoted to talking about Taylor Swift in the past year. And it it, it doesn't seem that crazy. And I am coming from the mom of a daughter who today's her 11th birthday and all she wants is Taylor. Like it's just Taylor. We give her a happy birthday card. Um, so I, I'm probably biased on this, but Kelsey was a star in his own right. Even before Taylor Swift, he was in ads for state farm, Pfizer, direct TV, Lowe's Experian, Campbell soup. The reason he even met Taylor Swift is because of this podcast he has with his brother, which is a huge hit on its own. It's called new heights. So you just take these people from very different spheres and combine them. And it, it does feel like they've taken over the world. It just seems almost too storybook though, right? They're together. It's the talk of the season and the Kansas City Chiefs come from behind in overtime to win the Super Bowl in big fashion. And we get to see the big kiss post game. 
Well, and it's funny because like she has a new album coming out in April called The Tortured Poets Society, I think, something like that. And you're like, you don't look that tortured right now. Like, I'm surprised. <laughs> you know, she already has an album called Lover, but why it's not like, you know, she's got Miss Americana and The Heartbreak Prince. This does feel like a fairy tale, a very commercial, very public fairy tale. When compared to her last relationship, you heard almost nothing about. This has been very much in the spotlight. But I guess that's what happens when you're on a world domination tour and you're playing on primetime every, you know, a Sunday. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We can't get to everything, but let's stick with music. The next class of Rock Hall nominees was announced over the weekend. Not a lot of rocking going on with this class, <laughs> but who doesn't love Cher, right, Lisa? Who's in this class of nominees? Yeah, but I don't know if Cher loves the Rock Hall. I mean, at some point she said she didn't want to be, you know, considered at all. But there are 15 nominees for the class of 2024. Ten of them are on the list for the first time. That includes Mariah Carey, the 1990s songbird who was crazy successful in that decade. Cher is the oldest at 77. She began, of course, back in 1965 with her then-husband, Sonny Bono. Uh, Foreigner, a 70s-80s rock band. Peter Frampton, I was in college when 1976's Frampton Comes Alive was the biggest album in the country at the time. Uh, cool in the Gang, a 70s R&B funk group. Lenny Kravitz, a retro rocker since the late 80s. The Brit pop group Oasis. Um, Sinead O'Connor, posthumously, unfortunately, she died last year. Ozzy Osbourne, also on the first time as a single guy, but he's already in the rock hall with Black Sabbath. And then the sultry jazz singer Charday, she's a first time uh, nominee as well. Uh, others on the list that have been there before, Mary J. Blige, the Dave Matthews Band, Eric B. and Rakeem, mid-80s rappers, Jane's Addiction, which was kind of an alt-rock pioneer back in the 80s, and A Tribe Called Quest. The, the Sade one is the one that really throws me. You could try and argue rock roots for everybody else, but she's a jazz singer. The thing about Cher, Mike Norman told me this. He's our longtime rock critic now. He's our entertainment editor. Said Cher has had a number one song in each of the past seven decades because she had some Christmas tune on the charts just this year. Seven decades. I don't know that anybody else can say that. So how do you not say she belongs in there? Well, and you know, I used to say that it should only be rock and roll people, but I understand that if you do that, because rock is kind of dead, <laughs> that it becomes like a graveyard instead of like a, a, a lively museum. So I'm still getting used to these non-rock inductees. Yeah, How are we know, doing on women on this list? It's a lot of women. I think that's part of what they're trying to recover mm -hmm. from because yeah. they've not treated women well over the years. Four, five, six, yeah, seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just shot it. I mean, I Dolly Parton was a reach, and now shot it. I just it's that it's like the rock hall. Should we change the name? Yes, but yeah. <laughs> all right, we'll see who gets in. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Monday episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back on Tuesday. Mm -hmm.